If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Dave Musgrave and this is the first History Extra podcast for July 2012. Coming up in this week's episode, we have... Well, a big elephant in the room is obviously D-Day and the Normandy invasion. That was Peter Caddick adams on the Battles of Monte Cassino... Hospitals generally weren't places you wanted to be if you could avoid it. And that was George Gosling on Victorian and early 20th century healthcare. This podcast is brought to you from the team behind BBC History Magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription, and there are details of the latest issue and subscription deals on our website, which is historyextra.com. We're also available digitally. You can purchase our Kindle edition direct from the Amazon website, and our iPad edition is available from the Apple newsstand. Find out more, visit the website historyextra.com. Also, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash historyextra, and Twitter, twitter.com slash historyextra. So, for our first interview, Peter Caddick-Adams. He's lecturer in military and security studies at the Devence College at Shrivenham. He's author of a new book on Monte Cassino, part of the Second World War Allied campaign in Italy. The first question I asked him was just to set the scene for us to introduce us to the story. The four battles for Monte Cassino were fought between January and May 1944. So in a time frame, we're talking about just before the Normandy landings uh, of June 1944. Uh, and how do we arrive in Italy? Well, the British, with American help, uh, have taken on the Germans in North Africa. And uh, once Rommel has been defeated at Al Alamein, uh, the Americans and Brits have landed with Operation Torch in French North Africa. Uh, the Germans and Italians have largely been removed from North Africa uh, by May 1943. That's when Tunisia falls. Once that happens, it's pretty inevitable that you're then going to invade Sicily, which is is the Axis stronghold, still dominating the Mediterranean, and you've got to do something about Italy and Sicily strategically because they are disrupting your lines of communication, all the convoys coming through the uh, Suez Canal going to England uh, are being disrupted by the German presence in the Mediterranean. So you've got to do something about it. So that means an invasion of Sicily. That takes a month, July to uh, August 1943. And then the Allies run run out of steam. They run out of steam intellectually because they're not quite sure what to do next. 
Um, the Brits would like to carry on under Churchill. He, he's always wedded to attacks in the Mediterranean as a way of getting into Germany's backyard, as it were, from the south. Um, the Americans do not want to pour too many men and resources uh, into the Mediterranean because they always see an attack in northern France as their, their main objective. Uh, anyway, a deal is done, and in exchange for a definite commitment to invade Normandy, in, in the summer of 1944, the Americans say, OK, we will spend the next year until then uh, fighting a, a, on the Italian front. And what we'll hopefully do is invade the Italian mainland, knock Italy out of the war, and, and cosy up to the sort of Austrian border in the very north of Italy. That's the Allied plan, and they hope to wrap the Italian campaign up by the end of uh, 1943, early 1944. So huge amounts of optimism. And that's why the Allies find themselves uh, in Italy, in mainland Italy, in 1944. So we also clarify uh, Italy's political position at this time. So where does it stand in, uh, in, 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 in politics of the Second World War at this point? The, the Rome-Berlin axis goes back to before the Second World War, uh, and it was largely uh, Mussolini's uh, poor performance a against the British in Ethiopia, North Africa, places like that, that meant the Germans came to their aid in the form of Rommel, uh, and uh, therefore the Italian-German alliance ends up fighting the British in the Mediterranean. Um, the upshot is that, that the Italians are not modern enough uh, are the poor partner of the, the Axis uh, coalition in the Mediterranean uh, and are looking for a way out. And so when Sicily falls, uh, politically Mussolini's position is untenable, uh, the war is extremely unpopular for the Italians, uh, they've, cr they've also sent a, a, a whole army corps to, to Russia, which has largely been destroyed, and so that makes Mussolini's position impossible. Uh, the fascist council overthrow him, uh, he's imprisoned, and, uh, and Italy then secretly decides to join the Allies. So it hasn't just surrendered, it's actually crossed over to the other side. And when that, the announcement has been made that Italy is now part of the Allied fighting cause, the coalition, the Germans go ape, absolutely bananas. Um, Hitler is beside himself in fury, floods German divisions uh, into mainland Italy. There have been a few there already. Uh, but he floods um, units in, bent on vengeance. The Italian army is, is disarmed, and about half a million of them are sent to Germany as slave labourers, and about a quarter of those are killed. Uh, and Italian garrisons around the Mediterranean are rounded up by the Germans. And the best-known incidence of this is um, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, the events that inspire the, the, the famous novel and film, where, for example, on, on Kefalonia, the Italians are rounded up by their former allies and, and massacred. And this is repeated in a lot of different places. So this is German vengeance on their former partners letting them down. So the Allies arrive in, in, on the Italian mainland. Uh, the best-known invasion is at Salerno in September 1943, uh, and the, uh, the idea is to get from Salerno north to Naples and then north to Rome by the end of 1943. And for the Allies, that's going to be possible, but they, they haven't taken account of Italian geography or Italian weather. OK. So uh, 
the, the Germans presumably uh, at this point are aware that there's a risk of a, a, an Allied invasion through Italy, so they, they're, they're putting in plans to, to prevent that. German policy uh, in late 1943 is quite interesting because Hitler doesn't know what to do. Uh, almost for the first time in his life, he's really indecisive because he's got two field marshals offering him conflicting advice. One is Kesselring, who has done a good job in the Mediterranean up until then, who says, let us defend forward, let's defend southern Italy and force the Allies to fight for every inch of Italian territory and we can really use the terrain to our advantage the other field marshal is rommel who's sort of slightly smarting from the loss of north africa uh, wants the ear of hitler again he'd been a, a, a former favorite of hitler's uh, and is saying i think what we should do is withdraw all the way up to the, the very north of italy and defend uh the the, the sort of uh, the alps because uh, that will give us a very strong um, defensive position uh, and we can stop the Allies absolutely dead in their tracks from advancing any further. But there's no point in spending time and resources on, on defending mainland Italy. And initially Hitler's inclined towards Rommel's advice, eventually uh, a very successful counterattack at Salerno, which almost pushes the Allies back into the sea over a 10-day period, convinces Hitler uh, that the Germans can actually do quite well in, in Italy, and therefore he's going to buy Kesselring's advice and force the Allies to fight for every inch. Uh, and as they do so, uh, it, Kesselring will buy time for the Germans to build defensive lines using the best bits of Italian terrain, uh, and the most well-known of those is the Gustav line, uh, which goes through the ancient abbey of Monte Cassino. So uh, how far were the Allies aware that, of, of, of the German strategy? You know, you said that they were sort of, perhaps they were expecting an easier ride through Italy than, than, they, than they got. So did they know that, that these defensive lines were being set up? The Allies are aware of... German plans in the round because we're reading the the German correspondence through the code-breaking effort at Bletchley Park. So we've got a lot of insight into what's actually happening. But there's a lot of wishful thinking. There's a lot of wishful thinking because this is late 1943. There's a feeling that we've got the Germans on the run. They've The year before, they were defeated at Stalingrad. Um, and so on every front, the Germans seem to have lost the initiative beyond the defensive. So there's a sense everywhere that the, the Germans are on the defensive. They've lost uh, in Stalingrad the year before uh, and seem to have lost the initiative on, on every front. So there is this sense on the Allies' part uh, that perhaps if they push that much harder, they've got the overwhelming resources that the Germans haven't got, uh, then the Germans will be rolled up really quite quickly. Um, uh, and and things you know come to a pass around this this place this this abbey in Monte Cassino. So why does that become such a focus of, of what's going on? The real reason why Monte Cassino fixes us so much uh, is as a result of uh, the appalling weather that um, we experienced fighting on the Italian mainland in the winter of 1943-44. It's so awful that. Uh, components of engines freeze and when the allies start their engines again uh, they actually disintegrate i mean metal fractures in super sub-zero temperatures this freezes men to death 
enormous snowstorms of anything between 15 and 20 feet smother uh, unfortunate outposts. This affects the Germans as well as the Allies. But it's a real showstopper for the Allies. We are, at that time, feeling all-powerful, omnipotent, endless supplies of, of manpower, machinery, equipment, aircraft. And all of this grinds to a halt. And before the snow, there's been huge rainstorms uh, that have uh, raised the level of the rivers, swept away pontoon bridges, turned roads to mud, uh, and so the Allied logistics has ground to a halt. So those two things, the, the rain, the snow, and really unfriendly terrain as well, all combine to really bog the Allied campaign down against all expectations enormous frustration all along the front. The Allied political leaders can't understand what's slowing the army down. And it's, it's simply weather conditions that we've never, ever encountered before. The Germans know about this from Russia, but this is a first for the Allies. Uh, and the, the campaign really grinds to a halt in the approach up to the most difficult part of it all, which is the, the Gustav line running through the area of Monte Cassino. And is this, this, it seems to me that this is one of the main things that tends to come out of, of historians writing about this, this subject, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps I'm wrong, but is, is this sense of the severe discomfort of the troops. Is, is, that, is that right? Did, is that kind of like the main theme that you tend to get when you're looking at the, 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 sort of the personal testimonies of the soldiers involved? I came to this in the way I, I write a lot of history, which is uh, I've interviewed as many veterans as I can, but I've also walked the ground. Uh, and I've returned to Monte Cassino probably 15 times in the last 10 years with and without veterans, but I've spent the equivalent of, of months on the ground. And you suddenly realise just how unpleasant it can be when the weather turns, it rains, uh, and you get a sense of it yourself. So how these people coped in 1944 um, with inadequate clothing, uh, poor rations, hopeless weather, and, and a chain of command that is, is hopelessly over-optimistic, I mean, just astounds me and I'm so full of admiration for, for what they did and what they achieved uh, and this this is troops of any nations I, I call my book um, Monte Cassino Ten Armies in Hell because I arrived at the conclusion that there were ten national forces really fighting in and around the Monte Cassino area on, on one hand you've got the Germans quite clearly um, and, and on the other you've you've got nine different components of the Allied coalition, some of whom have never really been written about. The Italians who'd come onto our side uh, are there. They're, they're not so much fighting, but they're uh, running all the logistics, particularly all the mules that we needed, which, which was the only way we, we could supply uh, frontline troops in, in that really inhospitable terrain. Yeah, I was going to come on to that. Is this question of all these different nationalities, how did that work? Was that, did that, was that a, an advantage or a disadvantage for the, for the Allied forces? The, the coalition part is really interesting for me because uh, I've served in the army in recent campaigns myself and I see, I've seen how uh, coalitions work in the modern world and it was really interesting for me to see how it worked in 1943-1944. And this is a, a huge coalition. Um, we've got British, uh, French, uh, Americans, uh, Canadians, the British Indians, uh, New Zealanders, South Africans... 
Poles and, and, and the Free French. Nine big national groups, but actually encompassing you know, much wider cultures, all the different Indians, the French North Africans. Um, so this, this is a huge and diverse organisation. And actually they're fighting, if you think about it, with different aims. The, the, the aim of the Poles is to prove themselves to win back a free Poland, which they'll never get. Um, the French North Africans have probably got different agendas to the white m metropolitan French troops. Um, you, you've got um, a whole array of Canadians who happen to be fighting in the Mediterranean, but in, in their mind, that's probably not the first uh, aim they would want to be fighting in, in Northern Europe. Uh, and then the Americans, goodness me, they're made up of a lot of Italians who, who've only left 10 years earlier. So these are people coming back to liberate, in some cases, their cousins and their hometowns and villages. So it's a, a real mix. Um, and they don't necessarily all gel together. And the chain of command is difficult and challenging. Some Brits are anti-Americans, some Americans are anti-Brit. The fact that we win in the end is an enormous tribute to the fact that we make this coalition work, but it's not bound to just because we're all at war with the Germans. And then on the German side, um, they do put up, you know, aside from the weather, they do put up a, a pretty stern defence. The Germans are fascinating at Monte Cassino because, by all accounts, with inferior forces, they should have lost fairly quickly and fairly easily. They have a, an unusually able general uh, in Albert Kesselring, actually a field marshal, who's German Air Force. He's Luftwaffe, not Army, uh, although he's, he served in the German artillery in the First World War. But he, he's a uniquely stable pair of hands and very, very competent. Um, and actually, he's commanding a coalition too. He's commanding Germans, but also Austrians, of course, they're incorporated into the, the, the German Reich. And then there's all sorts of people like sort of Slovenes and Ukrainians and Poles and Russians, some of whom want to be there, some of whom don't, but are all part of the sort of German war machine. So his uh, army in, in Italy, the Germans don't actually all speak German. And so it is one coalition who don't all speak the same language fighting against another coalition that don't all speak the same language. And I found that very interesting to sort of research and write about. And one of the, the main aspects of this of the campaign is that it does develop into this, this very bloody battle of attrition. Give us a sense about that and, 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 and perhaps can you give us an idea about why that happened? I mean, if, if we look at the Abbey itself, um, what we've got is a, an old Benedictine um, priory or Abbey. It's the principal monastery of uh, founded by St Benedict uh, in 529 AD, so very, very old. If you think of the, the one of the oldest Christian churches uh, in Europe, stuffed full of art treasures uh, and built in every century since it had been established, uh, sitting on top of a, a huge mountaintop. Uh, one soldier described it as a lion ready to crouch, uh, with enormous vantage points all the way around and dominating the main road to Rome. Then you have it in a nutshell. There's this abbey. It, it, it's hugely valuable from a heritage point of view, but it's equally hugely important from a military point of view. Um, and from it and its slopes, you can see and dominate absolutely everything. And that's the linchpin of the German defences. 
and we can't get within 10 miles of it without being spotted wherever we are. Do the Allies eventually get through? How do they, how do they break, break past the, the German barricades? The, there are four Monte Cassino battles, and the, the first in January is a, a wide-ranging attack, not just at Monte Cassino, but all along the river line to the sea, so along a, a line of perhaps 20 miles. Um, the second battle in February... Uh, which sees the destruction of the monastery itself, is an attack just on the monastery and the town of, of Casino. The third battle is pretty much the same, and that see, sees another attack on the town by aircraft, which destroys the town. And then the fourth battle is a replay of the first, so quite manoeuvrist in terms of trying to outflank the Germans, um, but with massive resources employed. So uh, in the first battle, where a division of perhaps 15,000 men attack at various points along the river and in the casino area. In the fourth battle, each division is replaced by an army corps of two or three divisions. So we ramp up the numbers, and there's over 300,000 troops involved in the last Battle of Casino in, in May 1944. And it's a combination of those, those sheer numbers swamping the Germans and the fact that the Germans have been eroded and have had very few reinforcements by then, that means that we simply overwhelm them uh, and they start to roll back and, and the Allied advance increases in momentum. And also we've got their measure. If you carry on fighting your, the same opponent in the same way, month after month, eventually you get their measure and you know how to fight them and how to defeat them. And that's the difference, I think, between our, our tentative battles and attacks on the Germans in January and our attacks on them in May. By then, they're defending in the same way. We start to experiment, do things in different ways with more manpower, and we simply get the better of them. OK, and just to conclude, so you've, we've, we've talked about D-Day a little bit, um, but clearly that's, that's the, the big question there is, what was the point of all this campaign when D-Day was always on the horizon? Was it just a, a diversion and a... A, you know, a, a pointless waste of life. I mean, the, the people who were involved in the campaign, they called themselves the D-Day Dodgers with this dark humour because they were getting this sense that, you know, perhaps they were missing out on the main event. So what was the point in, in, in all this bloodshed? Well, a big elephant in the room uh, in terms of the Italian campaign is obviously D-Day and the Normandy invasion. And the senior American commander, Mark Clark... It has been second in command to Eisenhower, who leads the Normandy invasion. And Eisenhower, Ike, uh, as his nickname was, was Mark Clark's mentor. So Mark Clark knows that D-Day is about to happen and knows roughly when, and, and realises that if he's to achieve anything uh, from a personal point of view, or his army is to achieve anything, uh, and that gets known and, and um, praised back in the United States, for example... He has to do it before D-Day starts because that will then be frontline news around the world and, and the Italian campaign will become a very poor second. So he's actually operating against the clock. He's hugely keen to get Monte Cassino sorted out um, before the D-Day landing start. But I guess the real reason why the Italians invade Italy in 1943 is to capture Rome. And it... It's a capital city, but it's symbolic of the capture of a whole country. Uh, and we, 
even then we're talking in terms perhaps of capturing Berlin, by which is shorthand for capturing Germany. So the capture of a capital city is, is psychologically a hugely important thing to do. And we hoped in 1943 that we'd be in Rome by the end of that year. It didn't happen. We hoped then by capturing Monte Cassino, which is, if you like, opening the gates to the road to Rome, that we'd be able to do that in the summer of 1944. And we just about make it, but the Germans make us sweat and pay in blood uh, for every mile. In terms of arithmetic, if we're going to be quite brutal, is the Italian campaign worth it? Well, one of the reasons why we're there is to draw German reserves away from what will become the Normandy front. And there's certainly evidence that uh, the Italian campaign is reinforced for the Germans who take troops out of France that would have otherwise gone to Normandy. Um, so there's an advantage there. The trouble is, because the Germans stall us so effectively, we also find ourselves reinforcing in Italy with troops that we can ill afford that might well have also gone to Normandy. So who is, who is stalling who is, is, is a moot point. Um, at the end of the day, we have to do something about Italy. We have to capture Italy. We have to knock it out of the war. Um, symbolically, we need to capture Rome. Uh, and symbolically, we do need to shift the Germans out of Italy. Their presence there disrupts our act. Anything we can do in the Mediterranean strategically. So we do have to have a presence in Italy and, and for, for reasons of campaign it's going to take a huge amount of, of manpower. So I don't think there's any way around that uh, and the trouble is the Italian campaign goes on so long and collides with the big effort going to Normandy and, and the Allies can't really afford to do two campaigns well so Normandy takes priority and the Italian campaign does unfortunately become a backwater, a hugely important one, a very well fought one from the point of view of the soldiers who were there. But we now tend to focus on Normandy at the expense of, of the troops in, in Italy. And they then with grim humour called themselves the D-Day Dodgers. They, the nickname D-Day Dodgers uh, allegedly comes in, in 1944 uh, from a throwaway comment of Lady Astor. And she was a backbench uh, Conservative MP who was prone to making gaffes. She was um, Lady Rent-A-Quote of her day. Uh, and if, if you wanted a, a notorious comment in a newspaper, um, you'd go and interview her and she'd be bound to say something stupid. Uh, and it, in 1944, she went on a, a tour of the front to Italy and came back very unimpressed with uh, the, the manners of British soldiers um, uh, and their cleanliness and all sorts of things that she held important. Uh, she seemed to feel that the, the British troops in Italy were letting down the, the national side. Uh, and in a, a, an ill-advised throwaway moment, throwaway comment, uh, she uttered this phrase, the D-Day Dodgers. Uh, and so that's what the British Eighth Arm, uh, Army called themselves. They created lyrics to the tune of Lily Marlene, which was a very popular German tune and then adopted by uh, the British Eighth Army. Uh, and it, it made a huge impression on, on people there. And perhaps one of the best-known soldiers who fought in the Italian campaign, he was a beach master at Anzio, but later on a Secretary of State for Defence under Labour was Dennis Healy. Uh, and when he 
was on Desert Island Discs and asked about the mm. most incisive, influential moments on his life. He referred straight back to the Italian campaign of 1944 and sung the D-Day Dodgers song. That's how much it meant to him, and he's never really forgotten it, and that's the same for the whole of that army, I guess. That was Peter Caddick-Adams. You can read a review of his book, Monte Cassino, in the July issue of BBC History magazine, or on our website, historyextra.com. If you want to listen to Dennis Healy singing the D-Day Dodgers song on Desert Island Discs, it's worth noting that the entire back catalogue of that long series is available to listen to, in the UK at least, on the BBC iPlayer. And just to reiterate, Monte Cassino, Ten Armies in Hell by Peter Caddick-Adams is published now by Preface. Today, the future of the National Health Service in the UK is a subject of intense discussion. George Gosling has been researching the past of the NHS, so in the interest of providing a bit of context to the debate, I caught up with him for a chat about healthcare in the past. We're talking about healthcare. We're talking about um, the healthcare in, in Britain before the NHS. Um, so the first thing that we need to do is is perhaps take us back to uh, as far back in the story as, as you're comfortable with going which I think is probably the Victorian period um, so can you give us an idea of of what healthcare was like in the Victorian period just sort of sketch out what what opportunities there were for sick people to get well in the Victorian period Absolutely. Well, the fundamental difference between the period after 1948 when we had an NHS and the period before going further back to the Victorian period is really that we're used to a system where there is one healthcare system, one unified system uh, under which we receive medical treatment. That was different going further back. If you go back to the Victorian period, what you have there is really a dual system. You have on one side uh, the poor law system where you would have workhouse infirmaries that were somewhere attached to that. Um, and on the other side, you would have voluntary hospitals. So one public side and one voluntary side uh, and the public side was something that was hugely stigmatised and it was seen by many people as being uh, very much an outdated system as we came into the 20th century which is why they brought in the 1929 Local Government Act when Neville Chamberlain was the uh, Minister of Health he brought this in which allowed local authorities to take over what had been workhouse infirmaries and turn them into general hospitals for the public at large uh, and there's some question amongst historians over whether that really changed and really removed the stigma but that was a way of modern Modernising the system, built on the workhouse infirmaries on one side and also on a system of local authority isolation hospitals for treating infectious diseases. So that was one side which was very much stigmatised. On the other side, you had voluntary hospitals. These were essentially charities, charities that had been funded usually from the mid-18th century on as a kind of response to a process of urbanisation, industrialisation and the issues of poverty that were coming along with that. Uh, and they would be independent from the state uh, as one part of their voluntarism. Another part was that they would be uh, founded, founded and primarily maintained by a series of charitable donations. They'd also be run by philanthropic lay governors and staffed by volunteer doctors uh, and these would be people who were not just doing it out of the kindness of their hearts but they would be using hospital treatment to provide for the sick poor as a way of kind of enhancing their credentials ready for private practice where they would treat uh, more wealthy patients in the privacy of their own homes or in private surgeries. So this was the dual system that operated uh, in the Victorian period as we come into the 20th century. In terms of the of the funding then, so clearly you've got the, the public versus the 
voluntary there. So the, the funding for the poor law um, workhouses that was that was from the public purse. Absolutely, that was through the rates. So that would have been funded. The infirmaries attached to the workhouses were funded in just the same way as the workhouse. So there was always the question of how much can we reduce the provision that's made because that is coming out of of local property owners purses. Yep. And then on the voluntary side, so that the money there it was charitable. It was coming from the rich. Well, the, the rich and increasingly the, uh, the middle classes. So, for example, you had systems like the Hospital Sunday Fund, which would be uh, where you would have hospital collections of plate passed around to raise money for the hospitals. Um, so, increasingly, it stopped being just the very rich, but increasing the middle classes. And then ultimately, with the introduction of a system of payments in the 20th century, you start to have the working classes paying as well. So it gradually was changing from being funded by the very rich to being a system that was paid for by everybody in different ways. And what was the what was the quality of care like between those two sorts of institutions? Was it markedly worse in the in the workhouses? Well, that's uh, something that historians debate, and I would personally say that it was markedly uh, distinguished between not only uh, public and voluntary, but within those two systems, there were big differences. So, for example, the voluntary hospitals are in many cases the elite institutions that some of which we know today, like Guy's or St Thomas or pretty much anywhere uh, across the country that's called something Royal Infirmary. These were places that would have been major uh, teaching hospitals linked to universities and medical schools. They would have had some of the uh, pioneering and elite uh, surgical treatments but at the same time the voluntary hospitals would also include cottage hospitals so they would be small houses converted uh, more like health centres which would be staffed usually by a local general practitioner so there is a, a huge distinction between these elite institutions and these smaller ones which are perhaps not the home to the, the elite of the medical profession and so those are differences within the two systems as well but certainly the stigma that was attached to the uh, the workhouse infirmaries is something that would perhaps detract from the best and the brightest of the medical profession wanting to work there as well as wanting people not to end up as patients there. Okay so if if you were unfortunate enough to be sick in uh, let, let's say the mid-19th century now um, how do you decide where you go to? Is, is, the, is the stigmatism of the workhouses enough to you know put you off going there unless you are in dire straits? Absolutely. Generally, you you don't end up in the workhouse unless you have to. Um, But a lot of people would have been uh, self-medicating. A lot of people would have been being treated outside of hospitals. Hospitals generally weren't places you wanted to be if you could avoid it. Um, So you would have a system which operated both for voluntary hospitals and for charitable dispensaries, which was a subscriber's ticket system, um, where you had charitable donors paying towards the upkeep and maintenance of these hospitals. They would, in return for that, receive a a book of tickets. And these were tickets that they could give to somebody as sort of a passport to receive medical treatment or receive drugs from a dispensary. And this is something where you would have to go essentially cap in hand to uh, somebody who would be a local notable, somebody who would have paid into the system might be a vicar or, or your um, your employer. Um, readers of Elizabeth Gaskell will recognise this system from the novel Mary Barton, where one of the factory workers is ill, so one of their um, colleagues goes to the factory owner and says, I think they need a bed in the sick ward. And, and he rummages around and says, well, actually, I don't have a, uh, an inpatient ticket, but here's an outpatient ticket. That'll have to do. And that's the system that would operate in those cases. If you needed to receive treatment, um, you would ideally treat yourself at home, you know, passing down sort of 
self-medicating tips through the family. If you had to go and receive treatment somewhere, you would try and buy your way in through this sort of subscriber's ticket system. And if you were left without anywhere else to go, you would turn yourself onto the workhouse infirmary. Okay, and it, and there were actual you know pieces of paper tickets that you had to you had to wave in front of the the registrar's face before you were allowed to get into the into the hospital. Absolutely, there were systems in place for 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 other cases, sort of accident and emergency cases. But generally, that was what you had to do. You had to turn up with your ticket to get be allowed in. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, and, and that sort of gets to, to to the nub of one of the issues here is that that system was based on, as you say, paternalism. But you know, you had to go and and beg from someone who was in a position of power someone who had who had had enough money to have funded the hospital and got the ticket so so that's that gives a uh, a slightly unhealthy dynamic to to that story, I suppose. Absolutely. Well, we shouldn't forget this isn't healthcare in the sense we know today, where you have a right to treatment, a right to health. This is a system of charity, and we tend to think charity is is people doing good for other people, and that's a huge part of it. But also, charity is a very complex power relationship. It's based on something called the gift relationship, which we may know. It's been written about in some positive ways, for example, by Richard Titmus, who wrote a book on on called the gift relationship on blood donations, saying it fosters of social solidarity but other people have written about how divisive it can be to have that dynamic uh, for example Fernand Braudel summarised it as he who gives dominates and this is a complex power relationship it's a, a sort of social dance that we're seeing here where you have to prove yourself deserving and this was at the core of, of Victorian philanthropy the idea that to receive uh, kind of to receive charity, to receive support, you should prove yourself morally deserving of that support. And this was a way of separating out those who deserved uh, support and those who didn't, those who were lazy and idle, and those who were just on fallen on hard times. And so this is what the subscriber ticket system did, allowed for a kind of moral filtering between those who were deserving of medical charity and those who were So on that basis, was the, was the subscriber ticket system something that would not have been popular among the urban poor? Absolutely. Having to prove yourself is not something that, that you would necessarily want uh, and there has been talk of this in the past sort of people saying well if you for example were the village socialist why would you want to go to the local landowner and have to submit to a political lecture if you were a religious dissenter why would you want to go to the vicar to have to to plead your case to go cap in hand um, certainly so this is something that you wouldn't necessarily want but if that's the only way to receive medical treatment that you need that's what you have to do okay so uh, how does the system change through the 19th century then? Does, does that system develop? Does, that, does anything move on? Well, that is very much in place as this philanthropic system. But increasingly, it's not just the philanthropic donors and founders of the hospitals who are in charge. Increasingly, doctors are asserting themselves. So what you start to have, um, in some cases as early as 1828, when the Royal Free Hospital was founded in London by Dr William Marsden, he purposely chose not to use the subscriber's ticket system. Instead, he had a system based around the receiving day, basically the modern casualty system. You turn up in this case on a particular day at a particular time and you wait your turn and a doctor will see you and then decide whether you should receive some kind of treatment and if you should, should it be as an inpatient and if so that's how you can be admitted, not by turning up with a ticket. And that is increasingly popular because it gives doctors an authority over the hospital themselves. Um, but that system kind of becomes flooded, it becomes overwhelmed. And by 1891, the House of Lords set up a, a Royal Commission to look into this and actually to look into why the system should be overwhelmed and what could be done to change it. Okay. Now, presumably the, the, the money for that system was still coming from the same charitable sources, though. Um, but it was just a transference of power and responsibility 
to the doctors. Absolutely. It was a change from being a philanthropic system to being an overtly medical one. But still, the patient had to, to turn up and accept the decision they were given. There wasn't really a, a shift in terms of the empowerment of patients. And that still didn't come even as we move into the 20th century when patient payments become more common, although that is something other historians would dispute. So that brings us on to the, the almoner system. So um, uh, we need to know what's an almoner and where do they fit into, the, uh, into this system? Absolutely. Well, the first almoner was Miss Mary Stewart appointed at the Royal Free Hospital in 1895. And the almoner is what we would now today know as the medical social worker, but their role wasn't entirely focused on providing support around medical treatment as it would be today. Instead, it was focused largely on assessing financial contribution. Could the patients themselves afford to pay into the system? Now, this is a system that is kind of being tagged on to the receiving day system. So at a time when patients are turning up into a casualty and they're waiting their turn to be admitted, there's then a second assessment they go through. So instead of just waiting to see the doctor and he decides, should you be sent home with some advice, with medicine, should you be admitted as an inpatient? After that, you then have to see the almoner and she would ask a series of questions about your family circumstances, about the income especially of you you and your family. And then at the end of that would come the big question, so can you afford to make a contribution to the hospital? And this is not something that was determining access. The doctor was still deciding should you or shouldn't you be given access to the hospital as a patient, but the almoner was deciding on what terms that should happen. And it was supposedly a a voluntary contribution, but certainly there would have been an overwhelming sense of duty to make a payment. But that must have changed the dynamic somewhat. If you you go to hospital and you receive treatment and then you are essentially paying for it, then then you would expect a level of service. Well... uh, One thing that's going to be a kind of buffer against that is the fact that um, there are huge waiting lists. So this is not like there's a a market where you can kind of, you have an exit point, as the economists call it. It's not something where you can choose to go elsewhere if you think you're not getting good enough. People are are struggling to get into the system as it is. And in fact, this is something that continues even after the the introduction of the NHS. You have huge waiting lists, and actually that is a huge barrier. So people are struggling to get into the system and then these are the terms they're offered treatment on. And that must have been just as an unpopular process as the subscriber ticket in the sense you, you, you're poorly, you, you've been treated or you've had, you had, had some sort of guidance and then you have to go and be grilled about whether you, you know, ask personal questions about your finances. Absolutely. Well, this is something that I've, I've suggested is actually that we should draw a link between the two, that this essentially is a new way of conducting the same system. Doctors are deciding who should come into the hospital or not. So that's slightly different from the subscriber's ticket system. But what you have, once again, is a non-medical person to whom you are having to prove yourself. You are having to prove that you're a deserving patient. Only in the past, it would have been your behaviour, your, your morality. Perhaps, you know, are you a drunkard or an unmarried mother? These are questions that might have, might have come up. But now what we're asking is, are you prepared to pay your way. So now what we're seeing is actually to be a citizen, to buy your way into citizenship, a bit like paying your taxes today, you had to make a financial contribution. But it's not one that you choose. Uh, and that is essentially the similarity. You are being judged by a non-medical person. So there is a similarity, yes. Yeah. And is it from there a fairly short hop to people setting up what are akin to insurance schemes so that they they're paying in advance on the, you know, uh, and 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 get, getting themselves ready in case they do get ill, that they've paid a certain amount of money and they can go into an institution. Is, when does that system come into play? Well, that system pretty much comes in in parallel. So absolutely, as we move into the 20th century, we start to see this, and both systems 
at the beginnings before the First World War, but after the First World War, that's when they really step up and this really becomes defining characteristics of the, of the British hospital system. So yes, here you start to have almoners assessing payments and at the same time you start to have what were called hospital contributory schemes, which would be ways essentially of bypassing the payment system and the almoner system at an institutional level. You could already get out of paying if the almoner decided you were poor enough, but now you could actually get around the system by paying in advance. You might pay two or three pence from your, your wages each week into the system and they would deal with all that for you. So it would avoid paying a lump sum, for example. You might be, if you could afford it, you might be asked to pay as much as a guinea uh, for a week in hospital. Um, and this, you know, two or three pence a week was a much more manageable way of doing that. It also removed the fact you had to be subjected to sort of scrutiny from a middle class almoner, which for a working class patient, there's a, a, a a major class dynamic at play there. Yeah. And does the the First World War play an important role in this? Presumably that changed the... Well, it, it would have introduced a lot of, of people with disabilities and illnesses as a result of conflict. Does it change how, how the healthcare system works? The changes of the First World War, I mean, it's, it's interesting, but, but I think the two main things that I would point out, and there are changes in lots of ways, but the two main things, you mentioned, for example, uh, people coming back who need medical treatment because of the war, and that is a factor, but really the public purse is picking that up through the, through the Ministry of War. You have a system of war pensioners um, who would have been funded publicly. Uh, that's one part of it, and there, is, there are tensions there with trying to make room for them in the hospitals and are the hospitals being paid enough? That's one part of it, but the other part is, is purely financial. The, the voluntary hospital system had been brought under public control during the First World War, and they had done so on, on the assumption that they were going to be paid a, a suitable amount for the work that they were doing. Um, in actual fact, there was huge wrangling, and pe people like Frank Prochaska have looked at this in the case of London, looking at how much of a shortfall there was between the amount the voluntary hospitals expected and the amount they were actually given. So this really added to the financial pressures on the hospitals, which really was what encouraged them to look to the patients to make a financial contribution. And this is something that from looking through the, the minutes and the debates that were taking place in the hospital on their committees, they really didn't necessarily want to do this. They weren't really passionate about moving from a system of charity to a system of payment. That really wasn't what was driving it. Financial necessity was absolutely behind this change. So when did people first start talking about the idea of a national health service then? Well, uh, in terms of calling it a National Health Service was, was a more recent development, but you can see uh, these debates going back further. I mean, for example, these debates were well established by the time of the 1909 Poor Law Com uh, Royal Commission on the Poor Law. And there you had a split between, obviously, the majority report and the minority report. They were so split on some fundamental issues that they had to produce two separate reports. Um, but they actually echoed each other on this. There were some differences, but they were moving in the same direction. The majority report, the more conservative, aspect um, was calling for a move to a more coordinated system, uh, one which would bring together the public and voluntary providers. Uh, meanwhile, the minority report was calling for a unified health service, one which brought them under a single chain of command. And it's a small step from a unified health service to a national health service. Okay. So as we move towards um, 1948 and the, uh, and the introduction of the, of the NHS, was, did the debate about whether it was a good or a bad thing to be trying to introduce such a mechanism, did it become heated? Did people have, you know, was there a, a lot of dissenting voices against it? 
there were absolutely dissenting voices and dissenting in all kinds of different directions. Uh, one thing that I would emphasise is that there were very few people certainly who were informed and at, at sort of at the top of, of any level of profession, people who were really involved were rarely what I would call particularly conservative, conservative in the fact that they didn't want change. Most people wanted change, wanted improvements. There were just debates about how it should be brought about. Um, for example, a lot of people, even in the Labour movement, even in the Labour government, people like Herbert Morrison, wanted actually to see hospitals brought under public control, but not as a national health service as we understand it now, where there was a sort of strong control from Whitehall, but in fact to be brought under the control of local authorities. So it would be a municipal system. Meanwhile, there were other people who were really calling for big changes, even in the voluntary sector, which some people have seen as being a kind of roadblock to reform. I don't see it that way at all. There were organisations like the Nuffield Trust, which was set up uh, in 1939, uh, and that very much became a campaigning force um, and a reforming force on the ground to actually bring about a coordinated system. We're back to the, the Poor Law Commission with the, the idea of a coordinated service or a unified service. You could have a unified service as Nye Bevan brought about um, with the NHS as we know it, or you could have had something different. And during the Second World War, the, the term national health service didn't necessarily mean a nationalised health service. Even conservative parts of the wartime coalition were saying they wanted a national health service, but they thought this would be a framework within which voluntary hospitals and public hospitals uh, and other service providers could work alongside each other, uh, but with some overarching framework, an overarching shared policy. That was George Gosling. He is a research affiliate in the Centre for Health, Medicine and Society, past and present Oxford Brookes University, and he's a trustee of the Voluntary Action History Society. We look at this subject and George's research in the July issue of BBC History magazine. That's it for this episode. Next week we'll be taking a look at Tudor smuggling and asking why sport caused trouble in the run-up to the civil wars. In the meantime, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries and more. Plus don't forget you can find our Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and Apple newsstand respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.